All right, in today's podcast, I sit with Levy Meyer. I connected with him because we're members of the Realm Luxury Real Estate Network. It's 500 plus members, mostly in the United States. There's a few in Mexico, and it is global with several countries representing themselves in the Realm Network. Well, anyways, he's out of Miami. He's a luxury real estate agent, and he's with Compass Real Estate. And we sit down, talk about how we got into real estate, very untraditional, and we talk about the real estate market in Miami. Take a listen. All right. Well, Levy, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you joining from Miami. I wish you were here or I was in Miami doing this podcast. Uh, well, we both happen to live in pretty luxurious and amazing locations, so I'm glad to be here, but I wouldn't mind being by you either. And thank you for having me. And are you originally from Miami? So, yeah. Uh, well, technically, I was born in California, uh, but I do consider myself a Miami native. My mother is born here. Her mother is from Florida, uh, and so I'm a multi-generational Floridian. Um, I have been here in Miami, uh, came back after my parents moved away briefly, had me in California, and uh, I was here since I'm three months old. So I've, I've spent the, the good majority of my life in Miami with a couple stints. I spent some time in New York, some time in Tallahassee, some time in Israel, but uh, Miami's always been home and I've been here pretty steady for the last 20 years. And you've been in the real estate game for how long? I've been in the real estate game since 2012. So I guess that puts me around 12 years right now. Okay. And the over decade of in the real estate market, where, where is the market currently in 2024 in Miami? Um, so the market for 2024, I would say is optimistic. Um, we're coming off of what was a fairly slow second half of 2023 as a result of the Fed uh, hiking interest rates to slow down the market. Uh, I think their hope was to actually curb pricing, but they were unsuccessful in that, at least in Miami. The demand here was too strong. So what you saw was instead of pricing going downward, you just saw volume sort of uh, volume volume drop that way and pricing and pricing sort of just flatlined. Uh, and we had gradual growth and depending, depending on which micro market you look at, um, in fact, there's an article we're about to quote uh, from this past month that says that that Coconut Grove, which is where my office is located, saw 21% price increases year over year in December. So, you know, it really just depends on how you look at that. Uh, you know, again, you can look from month to month and those those can jump. But if you sort of blend average uh, year over year, uh, we did see some gradual price appreciation in Coconut Grove and all throughout Miami. Um, but inventory is down and transactional, transactional volume was down over, over 40 to 50%. So really like just not a lot of homes selling, uh, the interest rates being high had, had sellers afraid of where they might go and buyers afraid of affordability. So everybody was a little bit of a stalemate. However, 2024 has a lot of optimism. You know, the stock market is rebounding. People are talking about crypto again. The fed is fed is the fed is planning multiple cuts, um, as Robert Refkin said from Compass, he was on on CNBC the other day. You know, the question is when and how hard will they make these Fed cuts? But as they're gearing up to do that, I think the optimism from agents is to go out and get their buyers buying now, and there's less competition than 
in three or four months when we hit that time when rates drop and suddenly you're going to have a lot more competition for the same home. Right. And you could always refinance if the mortgage affordability is the only That's thing it. preventing they, purchase. They, they marry the house and date the rate is what they say. So, uh, you know, I, I don't disagree. I think now is a really good time to go still have some negotiability, still be able to, to be competitive in terms of, uh, not necessarily have to be a cash offer or wave inspections or wave appraisal contingencies. You know, all those things that we saw when we had competitive markets. Uh, um, again, to yesterday's two and a half percent interest rate is today's five and a half. So, you know, if we got if we got interest rates down to five and a half percent, I think buyers are pouring in because we have a whole slew of buyers that have just been on the fence. They went to rent homes for the last year or so, but they still want to buy. And, you know, the 8% rate is a little debilitating. So I've been telling everybody, buy, get a great deal on the house now, talk about a refinance later. Yeah. What is the average days on market currently in your market? Um, it'll vary from location to location, but I would say Miami wide, is it's probably close to about 65, 70. Um, you know, there's some, there are a lot of homes that have been on the market for 180 um, there, we're starting to see expired listings, which is something you never, we didn't see in 21 or 22, right? So we're starting to see expired listings. Um, a good barometer that I use that, you know, not, this is something that I think most consumers wouldn't have, but, but, but agents are close to the fire and a really good barometer for how the market's doing. I've always felt is the amount of emails I get from other real estate agents promoting their listings, right? How many brokers opens, how many open houses? We're starting to get back to those, you know, sushi lunches and sunset soirees at all the open, all the, at all the listings. Uh, and my email is flooded with, uh, with, with just marketing materials from other agents. So I think that's been a sign of how slow things are, 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 have been, or how long it takes a house to sell and agents having to go and really put in the work to do that. Um, so like that has been on the rise. We're definitely seeing a lot more of that. And I think to your question on days on market, it is they are slower than they used to be. The houses don't sell in five minutes anymore. If you were to pick a certain segment, location, price point, size of house, what would you pick that it would sell like in one week with multiple offers? Right. Well, in the markets that we primarily service, which are Coconut Grove, Coral Gables, Pinecrest, Miami Beach, uh, anything sub $2 million <laughs> is flying off the shelves. In fact, when we looked at the, uh, the months of inventory, we saw that anything sub million, uh, was, a, was, a, was like a one to two month inventory still. Meaning, you know, if a healthy market has five to six months of inventory, one month is a heavy seller's market. But that's mostly because we don't have a lot of inventory anymore in our price point that's under that's under two million, let alone sub one. But in that one to two category, you still have about three months of inventory in in, in some of these most major markets like Miami Beach, Coral Gables, Coconut Grove, et cetera. Um, and so if you have something that's flying off the shelves, it's a million, a million and change, or it's Two million ish uh, with a, with a, with a lot of updates. Uh, you know, we're going to look at a listing this week that is just under two thousand square feet. The the sellers did a complete gut renovation. A listing like that, I have no doubt, is going to sell for for us within the first one to three weeks. Um, we are seeing things a lot slower in that three to five million, and then even slower in the five plus million. We just don't seem to have a whole lot of buyers in the in the seven ten plus million dollar category so that transactionally is way down from what it was over the last few years 
you think if the interest so, rates get into that mid five range, that that seven to ten million uh, price point will open up? I, I think so. Typically speaking, buyers at that price point are not as much interest rate driven, right? They a lot of them are cash offers, although they still t- tend to put debt on their on their on their purchases. Uh, they have the ability to purchase in cash, and they usually write cash offers. But I think the confidence that they have in the market is very much driven by interest rate as well. So they see that interest rates are down and buyer demand is up and the market is moving. They tend to they tend to move their money as well. And um, talking about your business, what does your business look like right now? You're like one of the top teams or the top team in the area. Are you not? Um, I would not. I would not call myself the top team, at least not by dollar volume sales. Uh, but I am in the top. Uh, you know, we're in the top uh, less than 1% of, of Asian wide. We're in the top, I'm in the top 100 of Compass Florida, which has 3,500 agents. Uh, so, you know, I have my ear to the ground. We're very active and fairly busy. Uh, for the moment, I run a fairly small team. It's myself, two agents, and one full-time assistant. Um, we are working on a slow but very organic expansion um, to be able to bring on other agents to help with uh, with buyers, especially in little in sub markets uh, that are not as close for us. I like to keep real estate fairly local, so my joke is uh, that I like to sell real estate where my golf cart and my boat can take me. And so, um, you know, my my golf cart has a forty mile range, but I don't like to drive. 40 miles to go do a listing uh, or a showing because it really it can eat up a lot of your day. And I think real estate's very local. So we keep a small but mighty team. Uh, last year, we did a little over 40 some, some odd transactions, uh, but we do have a, a fairly larger price point uh, that we we work within. As I said before, not a lot of real estate in Coral Gables, Coconut Grove, Pinecrest, Miami Beach, under that one or $2 million mark. So our average tends to be in the two to three plus range. In fact, you reached out to me well over a month ago because we're members of the Realm Network and you yeah. have a penthouse unit in the five range, correct? There in Miami? Yeah. So we have a listing in Miami Beach. It's it's uh, It would be considered uh, mid-beach or north beach. It's on 68th and Indian Creek. So it's not on the ocean. It's on the intercoastal side, essentially right on the bay at the Monaco Yacht Club. Um, phenomenal penthouse in fact we had a, a broker exclusive sunset soiree there the other night speaking of sunset soirees we had live music and sushi and you know cocktails um from 5 to 7 p.m just around that sunset time to take advantage of this unit's uh 20 almost 2900 square foot outdoor terrace so this is one of the largest terraces in miami beach <laughs> and it's really phenomenal to be right on the bay with the skyline of downtown miami ahead of you uh, all the little islands like allison and lagorce just at the footprint in the water there um, it's a three bedroom three and a half bathroom for 5.85 million and it's without a doubt the the sort of crown jewel of the monaco yacht club which is a really boutique building with less than 50 less than 50 apartments in the entire building. And there's only two penthouses. We have the north and the south side. So ours is the south, which gets you views from the ocean, uh, southern southern sun exposure. But pri- primarily, you get these really beautiful views of the skyline and the sunset. Fantastic. And you said 2,800 square feet on outdoor terraces, but the inside is how many square feet? The inside of the unit's actually just shy of 2,600 square feet. So you actually get more outdoor living space in this unit than you do inside space. Now, it's still a pretty hefty, you know, for a three-bedroom to be about 
almost 2,600 square feet is still a pretty good size for a three bedroom waterfront apartment. Um, but the fact that you get more than double that, <laughs> uh, more than that, it, it, double the space in the outdoor living is really, really an exceptional rarity that you don't see often in most of the units in Miami Beach. In fact, uh, that was the reason my clients bought it is because they wanted to be close to the ocean, but they didn't necessarily need to be upstairs. They don't mind walking across the street, you know, to go to go to the ocean. Um, but they really he wanted west facing sunset views and she wanted large outdoor living space. Combining those two things in Miami Beach is very difficult to find because the premier units in most of the, the luxury buildings along Collins Avenue tend to face east people mostly a lot a lot of people want that east facing ocean view um so to find so what you find is on the west side of those buildings they tend to put the one bedrooms and the and the the smaller units um that don't have the that they're not the premier sort of floor plan so it's difficult to find something west facing that's a premier unit especially and, and even more difficult to find anything with outdoor terrace space and that was where monaco yacht club was like the perfect hybrid of a boutique building great west facing unobstructed water views uh and a premier in a premier unit with a large with a large terrace space so that was a really great combination uh and i think this unit's going to sell fairly quickly so we're pretty pretty jazzed about it i love the speaking of realm you know i love the feature that we had at realm that connected us which is you know where we were able to upload our inventory and upload our contacts and the algorithm and the technology that realm has built in will basically say here are all the lifestyle features and price points of a listing. And we happen to know that Nick has in his database clients that might be looking for, for something with a yacht or something waterfront in Miami as a pied de terre. And so it connected us as like potentially having you potentially having a buyer for this listing and, and also just to be able to connect and build this relationship that I'm loving. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, and Realm, I've been a member for three years now, and I've met some great, great people, yourself included. And walk us through, before you got into real estate 12 years ago, what were you doing prior? I've, I've had a, a long run of various different, various different uh, careers. Um, you know, I have, a, I have, a, I have a, a relatively different upbringing than most people. So I didn't go the traditional route of going to high school and then going to university and getting a degree. Uh, you know, I grew up pretty or, ultra orthodox. So for me, the the path was pretty clearly set long before I had a say in it that I was going to go to school, become a rabbi, be sent somewhere in the world, and start start a community, and and you know, just and live the rabbinic life. Um, in my teenage years, I sort of decided that wasn't for me somewhere around the age of 15. And uh, I took an opportunity in my parents' divorce to sort of slip out and do my own thing and kind of march to the beat of my own drum. So I, I left high school fairly early. Again, had I stayed, it wouldn't have been a traditional high school route. But uh, I left fairly early. And I got my first sales job uh, when I was about 15, 16 years old. And that was hard phone sales, selling nurses and scrubs uniforms. But it taught me how to speak to people, how to effectively communicate. It, you know, it explained, it taught me a lot about, about getting to the yes and finding the why in any conversation to be able to achieve the result of, of what we're looking for in sales, which is ultimately making everybody happy in the transaction, right? Solving everybody's problems. 
Um, and so I've, I've done a, a slew of things and you can dive in as, as much as you want to any of those, but I've managed call centers for credit card companies. I have, uh, I've done international, uh, we call them defense, defense contracts for the United States Department of Defense in Afghanistan and Iraq, which is essentially uh, large contracts for small arms ammunitions to supply the U.S. Uh, and the, US, the United States Department of Defense in various countries with ammunition. That was a that was an interesting time in my that life. Was it a sales job? It was essentially it started for me more as like a logistics. It was kind of a hybrid. Uh, we wore a lot of hats in those days. But it was it started as sort of a sales slash logistics position um, and then sort of moved into just general management of just getting getting things done. Um, but we in, in addition to the DOD contracts, we also did a lot of ammunition importation. So we imported uh, containers full of ammunition pallets full from various countries, uh, hunting ammunition and, uh, you know, just just general hunting and, and leisure ammunition that we would distribute to a lot of different companies around the country. So there was a component of, of acquisition, a component of sales, and then more importantly, there was a component of logistics, getting getting the stuff that we would uh, procure around the world and, and having it logistically sent into war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. So a lot of very complex logistics involved in that. Um, you know, when that when that was over, I left and got back into sales. I managed some moving companies, but again, mostly managing call centers and doing outbound sales and customer service. And that was around the time that I got into real estate, where you know the moving moving business is a tough one. Um, probably, quite, quite frankly, probably more difficult or sometimes shadier than the arms business. Um, and, yeah, it can, well, it can be, and you're you're dealing in a very difficult uh, world over there. Um, you know it, what people don't know about moving is that is that you know more than half of the moving companies that are that are in existence and to my knowledge you know are are very sort of shady shady characters right they they the way that they calculate their their fees tend to be either by cubic foot or by weight um, and so there's a lot of ways that they can they can give an estimate to you if you're moving from Miami to California. Uh, they can give you an estimate, but then once everything's on the truck, that estimate changes drastically because the weight estimate is now different, or the cubic footage, meaning how much space it took up on the truck, which is an item that you have no control over, uh, that can change drastically. So now you're all loaded onto their truck, and they go to deliver you, and the feed doubles, you know, they told you four grand, now it's eight grand, they told you eight grand at 15. Um, and so, you know, the companies that I were working with, uh, had had unique methods of being able to give flat, uh, guaranteed calculations. Uh, but we were always competing against these companies that would, that would underbid us by half. And it would be my job to explain to people that they're going to get you on the truck and then more than double the price. And they're not going to unload that truck uh, until you pay them. And, you know, you can Google it. There was a, there was a time when uh, over 300 people from the moving industry were indicted in, uh, in federal cases where, you know, where it was, it was tough. So, you know, battling that and in general, being in a, in a world uh, that I learned in from, from, from the moving industry, you know, you learn a lot of really interesting things. You know, if somebody goes to buy an iPhone the experience is smooth, right? You walk into a beautiful Apple store and you you decide how many gigabytes you want in your phone and whether you need the large one or the small one. And then they just take your card and you tap your phone and you walk out with a little pretty bag and you're, you're whistling and smiling and you're excited to your new iPhone, right? Well, that that transaction is not as simple in, in the logistics world. Uh, you know, you're dealing with people who are uprooting their lives 
And, you know, for one reason or another, either they're moving usually because of uh, a death in the family or a new job, but something in their life has been completely drastically changed, causing them to have to move to another city. They're pulling up from their roots and they're in a very tense time in their life. Now you have to physically move their furniture, which is not as simple as putting an iPhone in a bag. Right? Like you, you, you know, people have a lot of sentimental uh, feelings around their furniture and human beings are lifting it and moving it. So you, you know, they're highly prone to scratching, denting, all sorts of all sorts of little issues that you'll have to deal with along the way. In addition to the logistics of a truck picking you up in one location and moving you halfway across the country, there's a lot of, they make stops along the way, the exact delivery dates are very difficult to calculate. So sort of keeping a happy customer in the moving industry is very, very difficult. In fact, what I found interestingly enough is that being in the sales side of things in real estate is is while while difficult logistically is dealing with the same people but in the happier time of their life right people are always kind of excited that they bought a house or they sold a house but now you have to move the house and that's where things get really sticky um so but i've I've worked i did a good amount of time in the moving industry and you know that sort of led me into into real estate sales uh i was actually it was it was sort of that time where I was I was doing in-home estimates and I went to a house gave them an estimate and I was I was flabbergasted by how much money they were going to spend to move the house and then the agent educated me just on how much that house was selling for and why that why it made sense to pay that to spend it to move this furniture across the country and that was my first eye-opening experience to say well wait you can sell a house for 5 or 6 million dollars and make a whole bunch of money. That's really, that's, you know, it sounded really great. And then you get back into it and you realize it's still a lot of logistics and keeping people happy. Uh, but I'd much rather be on this side of it than on the moving end. Let's just say that. Phenomenal. And earlier you mentioned you lived in Israel. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Uh, I went to Israel. It was many years ago. I'm 41 now. So that was when I was 17. I moved to Israel, um, sort of with a backpack and a and a dream, <laughs> you know, no exact, no real plan in place. Um, and I had just gone there on a trip called the March of the Living, where they take you to Poland for a week and you do a little Holocaust education. Then you go to Israel uh, during Israel's Independence Day and you do some celebrations, sort of see the past and the future and the present. And I just fell in love with Israel. I wasn't doing much. I mean, again, I had a job, but I wasn't, I was 17 years old and kind of free to do what I wanted. So I kind of packed up shop, took a backpack and a duffel, and I headed for Israel with an open-ended ticket. Um, so while I was there, I spent a few months living in the old city, um, basically living in a hostel <laughs> or a series of hostels. Um, and eventually I joined the Israeli army uh, where I did the service in the IDF, um, not for very long. It was a 14 month service that I signed up for and I got out a little bit early. Um, but, uh, but it taught me a lot as well. And I did learn to speak Hebrew, um, and sort of got, uh, what I, what I consider some of the discipline that you need to get through college, um, that most people got in, in university. I got, I got in the, in the military in Israel. Um, and then when I came back, I ended up going to college as well, but it turned out college wasn't for me and I left early. <laughs> wow, it's very different, not a conventional upbringing. No, not at all. And I have nine siblings and I grew up really orthodox. Like I grew up in a chaotic mess of a house. It was great, but, you know, just uh, never a dull moment when you have five brothers and four sisters. Jeez. And are all of them in Florida or you also mentioned New York? 
Um, I have a sibling. You know, they were scattered for many years um, as they went to universities and and yeshivas and did their own things. But um, most of them are now living back in Florida, uh, South Florida for that. And I have one brother who's now living in Denver and one sister who's now living in New York. The rest are pretty much back here in Miami. And my mother lives in North Carolina and my father lives in New York. So we are still a bit of a scattered family, but primarily everybody's here in South Florida. Maybe being only 41 years old and having 12 years of experience and already building a great business there in Miami, if we were to fast forward five years from now, where would we find you and your business? I'd like to see uh, in my business, you know, I think I really enjoy the broker aspect of it in working with people to to sell their homes, to buy their homes, to navigate the the murky water of buying homes in South Florida. There's a lot to know, a lot to learn, and and it's it's a very difficult it's a very difficult transaction. And I think having the right guidance makes a huge difference. And I enjoy doing that with people. So I would imagine that I would want to continue being in brokerage, but I'd like to expand on the real estate, other real estate aspects of my business. Um, just as I, as I constantly encourage and remind my clients that they should be buying and investing in real estate. Um, I want to expand my own investment portfolio. Um, so that one, that, that in my eyes in five to 10 years will look something like a combination of, of some multifamily investment rentals, um, some new development properties. Uh, I think, I think development is a place I'd really like to see myself, um, you know, ideally maybe starting in fix and flip homes and maybe moving my way into new construction, ground up spec home building. Um, but that's, those are the, some of the avenues I'd like to see myself in about five to 10 years from now. I'd like to see my business a little more streamlined where I have more of a team to, to take some of the, some of the, some of the, take some of the food off of my plate and be able to keep the, the wheel spinning. I can sort of cherry pick and focus on clients that I want to work with on an annual basis uh, while I'm, while I'm investing in my own real estate and buildings back home. And you're with Compass, and Compass has a lot of resources. They're a very big company. Um, how does working with Compass allow you to achieve that? Well, my favorite thing about Compass is really the network, right? Now, Compass is known for a lot of things. You know, they 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 were, we were we were a tech company first, a real estate company second. But when you when you look at all that, I mean, the tech has been great for us. I love the marketing tools. I love the CRM. I love the Compass Collections, which is a tool we have that allows us to shop for homes with our clients in a collaborative workspace uh, where you can comment on single properties. So we have dialogue and, and everything is very collaborative and condensed into one workspace. Um, that's been really game changer, not just for my buyers when they're searching for homes, but even for my sellers as we want to watch the market, right? So now they've closed on the home. What we do is we refine that search to be really just comparable homes. And then I set it up. So instead of notifying them immediately when a property comes on the market, my, my now seller clients get notified once a week, right? Or after they've closed just to keep an eye on the market. So the collections tool has been amazing for us. But what I found I really like about being at Compass is what I really like about being at Realm, and that is the network that that it gives us access to. So I've been very fortunate to spend a lot of time traveling to various different markets throughout the country, and Compass has always been able to sort of roll out the red carpet and introduce me to agents in other markets. So there's 
really not a single market I can think of uh, that I would ever have a referral for or ever have a client moving to where I didn't, where I couldn't pick up the phone and call a friend of mine who I consider a friend, a colleague and respect uh, in terms of the way that they do business. Uh, Compass has really given me a lot of that advantage. And it's, it's funny because when we did our first intro meeting a couple of weeks ago, it come to find out, we don't need to mention the client, but a client of yours in Miami is very, uh, has big roots here in the Baja. And Absolutely. it was startling. It's like, I remember you saying, yeah, he owns this company. I was like, what? That's, <laughs> a, that's a big deal. Yeah. And that's what I love about what Realm has sort of added where Compass, Compass uh, doesn't really have an international armor branch. In joining Realm, I not only now have access to other agents who are like-minded around the country that are not just waving the Compass flag, right? I've, I've met some really incredible agency agents. I've met some really incredible Sotheby's and Keller William agents and some agents that are at their own boutique brokerages. But it's expanded us into this international uh, market with using Realm uh, to meet people like yourself, people like Anthony out of Saint Tropez, people like Sean and uh, you know people like yeah. like Sean and Turks and Caicos, and being able to have agents that are not just within Miami. Miami's a very international city, and you know I just I do I find it really interesting. That I don't spend a lot of time in Mexico, but just living in Miami, I know people who are in or in Baja and are are fairly are fairly well-connected, affluent, affluent uh, individuals in those markets. Yeah, it's startling um, how much um, we're all connected because the more I reach out to other Realm members or other networks I belong to, it's like they know Cabo, the Baja, they have clients here. And just a simple phone call, simple connection, and you start uncovering all these opportunities for both sides. Absolutely. Um, and, and we're starting to see a lot more international. You know, the last couple of years has really been more local. Um, I think with COVID, the international transaction really came to almost to a screeching halt. And it was really New York, D.C., California, Chicago. Those were all those sort of feeders, but people moving to and from Miami. Um mostly two though. <laughs> uh, and uh and we saw a little bit less people coming from other countries. Now that all the COVID restrictions are gone, all the bans are lifted, everybody is freely traveling between all these other countries. We're starting to certainly see a lot more South American uh, money coming into Miami, Mexican money coming into Miami, um, Colombian money, a very strong Colombian Brazil. Are, you know, we're seeing a lot of buyers from those markets. So I think there's a lot of great synergies and we're, we're in a, a unique position in Miami to be able to help people you know, find their second homes, third homes, investment properties. You know, we had this week, just looking at my board, you know, we had three calls, um, two New Yorkers and one Brazilian family, uh, all looking for second homes in Miami, second, mostly condominiums. Um, they want to be on the beach. So they're looking either in Miami Beach on Collins Avenue, or they're looking in Key Biscayne. Um, we have a call this week scheduled with somebody who wants to be, who wants like, a high level of security and privacy, um, you know, and for that, they're coming from a South American country where, uh, where kidnapping is not uncommon and, uh, and, you know, they, they want, they want safety and security. And so, uh, we're going to be showing them properties in Fisher Island, 
which is Fisher Island, if you're familiar, is the, it used to be connected to the bottom of South Beach, but when they, they actually kind of, uh, they cut that open, historically speaking, to make to make governments, they call that government's cut, um, to bring ships to the port. So that separated Fisher Island from the rest of South Beach, um, and there are no causeways or bridges to it. So that is ferry only. You get you drive your car onto a ferry boat. It brings you to the island. So you can either come there by ferry, boat, or in the near future, they are talking about uh, a helicopter landing pad as well. Wow, 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 wow. That's incredible. Um, well, But maybe- prices on Fisher are not cheap. Uh, you know, we, they started with a budget of about three and a, up to three and a half million. And I told them there is actually only one listing under 3.9. Uh, there's only about six listings between four and five million, and the rest sh- shoot up from there seven plus. So Fisher Island is a sort of a special animal in itself. Levy, I appreciate you joining us on the podcast, and I look forward to a lot of future connections. And um, here's to a great 2024 in your business and mine. Absolutely the same. And I will hope to be making a trip to Baja this year, so I will come out and visit. All right. And everyone, until the next one, bye for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nick Fong Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Ronaval Real Estate. And follow Nick on Instagram at Nick Fong underscore Ronaval. Ready to find your Baja dream home? Check out the latest property listings at ronaval.com or findmexicohouses.com. Hasta luego.